perhaps a bit more difficult to find than the Gospel of Luke, but hopefully not too much. Because I've had the task of of becoming somewhat absorbed with this little book this week, uh, this prophecy, this prophet of Micah. And to bring, I trust to you, the, the truths of God's words and the application as it reveals Christ and as to them and also as it reveals Christ to us. So there is my goal today, as it is each week, to set Christ before you anew and afresh. Now, Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, which places him in about the 8th century B.C., the 8th century before Christ. And some have cited that perhaps God raised up Micah if for no other reason to simply be a second witness. By two witnesses, a matter is confirmed. And so some of the things that Micah says uh, you find as well in the book of Isaiah. So perhaps in God's providence that he was raised up as nothing more than to be a second witness to the truths that Isaiah proclaimed. The key event that occurs in this time frame is, of course, the fall of the northern kingdom or the nation of Israel. And that takes place in 722 B.C. Now, I'm not going to assume that we have all this mapped out, but just let me very briefly give you a history of what has transpired that after King David, his son Solomon assumes the reign. After Solomon, because of some of Solomon's and all of his wisdom, his foolishness, Judgment falls upon the nation, the one, the single nation of Israel, so it's split. There becomes a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is ruled by a man named Jeroboam. The southern kingdom is ruled by the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. Jeroboam immediately sets up other places of worship rather so that the people of God who live in this northern kingdom would not be going down to Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. His concern was that, well, these people, when they were making their, their annual treks for the festival days, the feast days, which they were supposed to go and to observe, his concern was that in their traveling down to Jerusalem, they would decide, you know, this is really where we belong. And so Jeroboam set up other cities, the capital city of, of the northern kingdom, was the city of Samaria. And so the northern kingdom became known as Israel, fell immediately into idolatry as Jeroboam raised up false gods for the people of God to come into worship. The southern kingdom preserved the Davidic line. The city of Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. So you have David and Solomon, and then after Solomon, his son Jeroboam. Jeroboam is one of many of the sons, the descendants of David, that continued to rule in the southern kingdom. So the key event that takes place in this time frame when Isaiah, as well as, as Micah, are prophesying is the fall of this northern kingdom. When Assyria comes in and destroys the northern kingdoms, and what they would do is they would come in and they would remove the people from a conquered land, take them in and disperse them into other parts of the kingdom, bring in other people so that there was such a homogenization of people, there was no sense of nationality, and hence there was to be little likelihood of the people gathering together and, and raising up any type of rebellion. Samaria becomes the capital city of Israel. And it appears by reading through Micah's 
Micah's prophecy, I'm going to look just direct your attention to a few different passages here before we get to our text in chapter 5. It appears that Samaria is still standing at the outset of these prophecies. Now, what we have here in the book of Micah is a collection of prophecies. It's not as though he stood on one given point and said all this at once. That's not the case at all. But according to Micah chapter 1, verse 6, For I will make Samaria, here speaking of the city, the capital city of the northern kingdom, Israel, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. So evidently when Micah begins his prophesying, there is, the northern kingdom is still standing. Interestingly enough, that Micah doesn't make much of the fall. In fact, he doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't say anything about the nation of Israel's fall when the northern kingdom was destroyed. And so, most commentators have concluded that there's likely a time gap between the first part of Micah's prophecies and the latter parts, because some of the latter parts are clearly to Judah and to Jerusalem to the southern kingdom. And so we don't know exactly how these things fall into place, but it seems that there's probably a period of time when Micah was on the scene speaking forth the prophecies, the word of God against Samaria, against the northern kingdom. That falls, and Micah seems to disappear for a while. But he comes back. And when he comes back, it seems that uh, what has taken place here, that the shock of what took place when Samaria, when the northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria, that the shock of that has waned, it's worn off. And so the lessons that Judah ought to have learned from the destruction of the northern kingdom, their own brothers and sisters, ten of the twelve tribes removed from them. There was a lesson there to be learned. But evidently that lesson had been forgotten. And so you have, even when you look in chapter 3, verse 11 of Micah, there is a sense of a false sense of security. Look in, in Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Her leaders pronounced judgment for a bribe. And that's not the verse I'm looking for. Yes, it is. Keep reading. I'm coming back to this verse. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money. And here's what they do. With all the wickedness, yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? See, there's a false sense of security that's arisen here in this southern kingdom in Judah. Isn't God in our midst? Aren't we the people of God? And perhaps the thinking would be, well, of course the northern kingdom, our brothers would have fallen there. They were in idolatry. They didn't have the Davidic kingdom. We have Jerusalem, the holy city in our midst, we have the descendants of David upon the throne. So that means we have the covenant of God with us. So wouldn't we expect that our brothers in the north who have fallen into pagan idolatry, they, they should have fallen, but not for us. Yet in the midst of all that's apparent there, there's this false sense of security. The book of Micah can be divided into basically three parts. They're marked by the word hear. H-E-A-R. Hear this. The first part would be Micah chapter 1, verse 2. 
Hear, O peoples, all of you. The second part would be in Micah chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob. And then the third part would be in six, chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> Hear now what the Lord is saying. Those are very common distinctions and divisions that, we, that seem to be deliberate here in Micah's writing. In Micah's writing, there's a pattern given to us of threats of judgment but also promises of restoration that occur throughout this book. And it moves very quickly at times from one to the other. You're reading on one point about the threat of ju the judgment of God being upon them. And then all of a sudden, you're reading about a glorious restoration. And then all of a sudden, you're back to more threats being thrust upon. So this, this going back and forth of between the judgments, the threats of judgment, and the promise of restoration are found throughout this book. Micah addresses the sins of the people. And note there in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. Interesting thing about Micah. He never gives a, gives a, a clear-cut call for repentance. And that's very common among the prophets, is it not, that they call the people to repentance. And Micah doesn't give a clear-cut call to repentance, but what he does do is he, he summons the people of God into God's courtroom. And that's what you have here in chapter 6. They're being summoned to come into the court of God and make their case for where they are and for what they're doing. It says in verse 2, Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, you enduring fountains of foundation of the earth because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with Israel, He will dispute. The Lord presents His case here in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answered me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Aaron, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal, I know that you, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. What's he saying here? He's just rehearsing here. This is what I have done for you. So if there's one thing that ought to be certain in your mind, God acts righteously and graciously on your behalf. And so if there would be any sense of objection in verses 6 and following, or... Any sense of uncertainty even that they, the people might raise. And here he raises these questions. Well, with what shall I come to the Lord? Speaking as the people might say, well, how are we to come to the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams or not? I mean, Isaiah has said on times that God does not take delight in these things. Does he take delight in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? You know, the objections that people... Right? What are you supposed to do? What's right here? And then this well-known text here in chapter 8. He's told you, O oh man, what's good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. Before your God. So he addresses the people here. But there is a focus in the book of Micah. 
upon the leadership, upon the, the civic and the religious leadership. Chapter 3, verse 11, we, we see what the, what's going on here. We see her leaders pronounce judgment. In other words, those to whom you would go and, and hope that there be some measure of justice meted out in a situation, in a crisis, or in a problem. The leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. And the priest, they'll give you instruction for a price. And their prophets, they divine for money. He says in chapter 3, verses 5 and following, it's about the prophets. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they've got something to bite with their teeth, in other words, they're being well fed, they cry, Peace! As long as you're taking care of them. They're eating well. Peace. There's peace for the people of God. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, in other words, those who are providing no benefit to them, they declare a holy war. So you have a, a situation here where the rulers, the priests, the false prophets here have, have arisen up. And, and Micah addresses that very strongly here in his prophecy. That's a long introduction, isn't it? <laughs> we haven't got to our text yet. Now, what type, what type of message speaks to a people of this day? It does two things. That indicates the gravity of sin. The reality of judgment. The reality of God dealing justly with sin on the one hand. Yet, on the other hand, it presents the truth of God's faithfulness to His covenant, to His word, and hence to His people. And that's really something of the task of the prophets. And Micah, no exception there. To proclaim a message that on the one hand presses upon the hearer the gravity of their sin. That God does not look lightly upon their sin. He doesn't wink at it. And there's the, the assurance here that, that judgment is coming. And we, if you read through the book of Micah, you see it. Yet on the other hand, Micah feels the, the necessity of proclaiming the faithfulness of God to His covenant, that God has made a covenant to Abraham. God has made a covenant to David. That covenant will be honored. And hence, God will be faithful to His people. How do you do that? What kind of message does that take? Well, it takes the message that's spoken forth, as, which was, again, the work of the prophet, speaking forth as God's spokesman. Our text this morning is Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and following, through the first part of verse 5. But to help to get something of a context here, I want to back up and to read part of chapter 4. Verse 6 is where I'm going to start, and I'm going to comment briefly as we go through just to help us understand what's going on here. In that day, here is a speaking of a restoration. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, and I will gather the outcasts. 
even those whom I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Here, speaking of Jerusalem, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now notice this word here, very important word here in verse 9. Now. Now, This is what's coming, we've said in verse 6. This is what's the the promised restoration. But now, verse 9, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? This is judgment. This is the wrath of God being poured out upon His people for their sins. Verse 10, Writhe in labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. From now on, for, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. Here's the judgment, but here's the promise of restoration. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now, here we are again. Now, not, not coming in years to come. Now, many nations have been assembled against you. Who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Here's restoration again, isn't it? Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. You see, going back and forth here, you have this, you have this, here's the judgment, but here's the restoration. You're going to be, you're going from this land, but I'm coming after you in Babylon to restore you. Now, verse 5, back to the word now. I mean, chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the now again. Now, muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. What's going on? This is the judgment upon them. Gather yourself into troops. Get yourself together and try to group yourself in some sense because they've gathered against you. They've laid siege against us with a rod of With a rod will they smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's judgment, isn't it? And then immediately look where he goes here in verse 2. And this is our text. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child, that the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at this time, Because at that time, 
he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. <clears throat> well, we often speak of a, of a God sinned. Don't we? We know what it mean. We mean when we talk about something or someone being a godsend. It's something that it's good. That either it's maybe a person that comes into our our life at just the right time. Maybe a thing. It may be a circumstance. But we all have those things. Look at and say, man, that was a real godsend. I needed it right there. I need this individual. I need this person, and, and it came. And we're thankful for that. And well, Micah, with all of Scripture, consistent with all the revelation of Scripture, speaks to us. Of a clear was clearly God's greatest God sinned, and that is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what I want us to do this morning is to consider Jesus as one who is sent by God, and as He says here in in verse three, this one who will go forth for me, or to me. As Jesus is revealed here in the book of Micah. And as revealed in the books, in the gospel accounts, and as is revealed even for us today, and to receive him as to receive him as such. I don't think you're going to hear anything profound today. I don't think you're going to hear anything new. But I hope that doesn't mean that it's something that you can't find to take home with you and apply. Because our problem is not that we need to hear something new, is it? And it must. The problem is we just need to hear the same thing over and over and over again. And so this morning, we're going to see how Jesus Christ is revealed to us here in the book of Micah from our text. And the three things I've given to you in your outline, in your bulletin there, He is God's sovereign. He is God's shepherd. He is God's shalom. Now, since I gave, wrote that outline for the bulletin, I've changed mine just a little bit. And you may want to note this. I put beside God's sovereign, I put God our sovereign. And I put beside God's shepherd, God our shepherd. And I put beside God's shalom, God our shalom. Because we understand that as we read of Christ, we're reading of God. And Christ is, comes as the sovereign, Christ comes as a shepherd, and Christ comes as shalom. And so that's how I want us to see Him today. Now... A long way to go and a short time to get there. May God give us grace to do so. The first thing that becomes readily apparent when we think, when we read about this prophecy of Micah, this one here in verse 3, it says, this one who, who goes forth. I'm sorry, verse 2. This one who goes forth from Bethlehem. He's no ordinary individual. He's not just another man. It says there about him, it says his going forth, in verse, the last part of verse 2, his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, this is not the first appearance of this individual. This person has a history of appearances, of coming forth. And we can see that through, throughout history, recorded history. It says that this one... Come, goes forth from the days of eternity. In other words, that this one had going forth, coming forth, before there was even the recording of written history. So what's he trying to say here? He's trying to point us beyond the history of men. He's trying to point us beyond humanity. He's pointing us to those times before the world began. And what are you left with? You're left with God. This one who is coming forth, He is God. 
And isn't that consistent with the message of Isaiah, Micah's, Micah's contemporary? When Isaiah speaks of God and his prophecies, he, one of the titles he gives to, to this Christ as Messiah is his, his name is Eternal Father, the Everlasting Father. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What does he say about him? He says this one he is to be a ruler in Israel. And literally, the translation could be, he is to be the ruling one over Israel. And there's a couple of things to grasp, to grasp from this. The verb form tells us that he comes as one who is already ruling. In other words, he has not come coming as one to become a ruler. That's not what it says. He is coming as one who is already ruling. And the noun form of this ruler, the word, this translated ruler, is having, means having dominion or exercising authority or reigning with authority. In other words, this one, he arrives as one who is already ruling and establishing his rule for their sake, their understanding, within Israel. But there's more to it than that. But it says here in verse 4, it says that at that time, the last part of verse 4, at that time He will be great, not just in Israel. He is not coming just to, to, to demonstrate His rule over Israel. It says that He will be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, His rule is a rule over all the kingdoms of men, over all the earth, that there is nothing, that there is no one that is beyond the realm of His dominion, so that this one, when He comes from Bethlehem, He is one who is coming already as a ruler. He is one who is coming, who has already been coming throughout recorded history, and even before that. And He is one who is coming to establish His rule over the kingdoms of all men. So the contrast that's set forth here is to, is to consider that one of such greatness and glory comes from such humble origins. As he says here in verse 2, here's the surprise. As for you, Bethlehem, here's the surprise. That one of, of such glory, the one of such greatness is coming from a place like Bethlehem. So once again... The eyes and the hearts of the people of God are turned to Bethlehem as they've been turned there before. Bethlehem is in fact known as a, as a covenant place. The title there is you have Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah means fruitful. And Bethlehem was one of the cities, one of the cities or towns that provided resources for the city of Jerusalem. They provided food. There was a, they were uh, known for the provision of food there, whether it be crops or even meat from livestock. So it was one of the provider cities there. So it was a place that had a fruitful history in that sense, but it also has a fruitful spiritual history. First of all, it was a place of, of Benjamin's birth, Jacob's youngest son, and the burial place of Rachel in Genesis chapter 35. But also we know that Bethlehem was the city from which Boaz was from, and he and Ruth lived there after their marriage. And of course, Boaz was the great-grandfather of King David. So David also from Bethlehem. But Micah's emphasis here, and here, not just Micah, we're saying this is God's, God's word. God is speaking here. The emphasis in this is the smallness and the insignificance of this little place called Bethlehem. And the point is that you don't 
You don't measure... You don't measure the one's splendor and his glory by where he comes from. God says, I am sending one forth. One is going forth for me or to me from this city of Bethlehem. And he is going to rule over all things. Now, in the ears of those who are hearing this, what's the significance of this prophecy? First of all, uh, there's three things. First of all, there is the judgment of God that is for sure. Why is it that a ruler would come from Bethlehem rather than Jerusalem? Well, the only answer to that is that the kingdom has been removed from Jerusalem. That they're not, they don't have their king set upon the throne in Jerusalem anymore. So part of the significance of this prophecy of one coming forth from Bethlehem is the kings aren't coming from Jerusalem right now. It talks there in in chapter 5, verse 1. It says that with a rod they will smite the judge, and the judge is the leader, the ruler of Israel. What's that a picture of? It's being smitten on the cheek. It's an ultimate insult. In other words, this judgment that Micah has has talked about, the seriousness of your sin, the consequences of that, they're coming upon you. Yes, that's true. And you see that even in this prophecy here. It says in verse 3, Therefore He will give them up. He will give them up. Who? His own people. He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor, labor has born a child. Now, is that speaking of the Virgin Mary? People differ in opinions on that. John Calvin thinks that it's a, it's a forced interpretation to read Mary into that, but it doesn't seem very forced to me. It seems like a pretty, pretty natural interpretation, but, it, but he would say that it's speaking there of Israel itself. But whatever the case may be, there is this prophecy there in verse 3 that he has, in fact, given up his people. The judgment. That's the first significance of this prophecy. First, the judgment is sure. Second is the nature of God's abiding covenant. In other words, God will restore His nation. God is going to raise up someone from somewhere and it's going to be Bethlehem. He's going to restore His people. And I think He's speaking there of the church. Raising up the church. As the, as the new, new Israel. The third is the rule of righteousness. This was, a, this was a people who knew what it was to have rulers and judges over them that were unjust. They were given over to bribes. And so there was that, the reality of there will be a righteous rule. There will be no more injustices by corrupt rulers. Because this one who is coming to rule, he is the Lord and he is God. And that's our testimony. That's the testimony of the church today. Is that Jesus Christ is not only our sovereign, He is sovereign Lord over all things, and His reign is a righteous reign. And the reality of it is this we will serve someone, will we not? We will serve Christ and His rule, or we will serve the one who would destroy us, we will serve Satan and His kingdom. So we gladly receive, we gladly recognize Christ as our Sovereign, as our Lord, as our Master. But we proclaim also that Jesus Christ reigns now. His rule is now. Say, wait a minute. 
I see a lot of chaos in my world around me. I see a lot of evil that seems to to take the day. And you're telling me that in the midst of that, that Jesus reigns now? No, that's later. When He comes back, then He reigns. That's not the message of Scripture. It's not the message of our text here. He comes as God and He reigns now. How does He do that? He reigns on the earth because there is no sin. There is no opposition to Him except that which operates within the realm of His will and His purposes. He's in control. He reigns. And so when we look at the world in which we live and we see the chaos and we see that it seems that evil prevails, that our testimony is still this, Jesus Christ reigns. He is the Lord. He is the Sovereign One. And that those who live in apparent contradiction to Him do no more than He wills and He permits. Christ reigns. He is our Sovereign. He is our Lord. But lest we conclude that with that picture that He is distant or indifferent, He's also revealed to us that He is a shepherd. He is God's shepherd. God our shepherd. It's a common metaphor in Scripture, isn't it? We've already made reference to it this morning in some of our reading. God's people are like sheep, according to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, if He's a shepherd, I've got to be a sheep. You know, Psalm 100, that there we are compared to being the sheep of His pasture. Isaiah 40, 11, which we read earlier, that like a shepherd, He will tend to His flock. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Micah 2, 12 speaks of, I will put them together like sheep in the fold. Jeremiah pronounces his woes against those who fail to shepherd the people. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 and following. And even when Jesus was here, as He looked upon the multitudes that were around Him, Matthew tells us that He, was dis- he saw them as those who were distressed and they were downcast. They were like sheep without a shepherd. It's very common throughout the Scripture to see that picture given to us. And Micah's word here in verse 4 of chapter 5, He will arise and shepherd He will arise and shepherd. What is a shepherd's role? Well, the shepherd's role is one of care, one of provision. We see some things revealed to us about the, first of all, the nature of his shepherding. First of all, he shepherds in the strength of the Lord. He is a shepherd who shepherds with the strength of God. Because He is God. All the power of God at His disposal. He is a more than capable provider for His sheep. He also says that He, in the, he shepherds in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. Verse 4, in the majesty in the name of the Lord His God. He reveals the majesty of God because He is God. 
where God is glorified and God is exalted that we see here. And then we also see here the result of his shepherding. In verse 4, the next phrase, and they will remain. His flock will remain. The sheep will be kept. They're not going to be destroyed. They will dwell safely and securely. So Micah's message is this, that God Himself is not just a distant sovereign who would rule over us. He is one who is God Himself, our shepherd, who is for us and who is strong and He is glorious. To think of that, folks, that God is for us. And the message of Jesus, when He speaks of Himself, what does He say in John 10? It's recorded there, He says, I am the good shepherd. And what's the, what's the character of a good shepherd? The character of a good shepherd is this, of laying down my life. And in physical terms, that just simply means this, that a shepherd is willing to do whatever is necessary to, pres- to preserve his sheep. The shepherd goes out and he fights the wolf. He fights the bear. He fights the lion for the sake of his sheep. Laying down his life, knowing that it may cost him all that he has to preserve his sheep. But we also know the deeper meaning of that, don't we? For the believer, for Jesus to preserve his people, he laid down his life. It's not just potential, it's reality. Why would he do such a thing? Because he's a shepherd who cares for his sheep. He's a good shepherd. He labors on our behalf. He shepherds us gently and graciously and calls us into the sweetness of his fellowship and to rest in his goodness and his kindness and his mercies. Just to think upon that Jesus Christ as my shepherd. Jesus Christ for me. He is for me. And He places my needs before His comforts. And the psalmist, again, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What does He say? What's His testimony? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't need anything. Got all that I need, all that I want. Because God's my shepherd. And I have, if nothing else, I have Him. To give thanks to Him as my shepherd and to be brought nigh unto Him. And finally, we see here one final description of this one who is going forth. And of course, Jesus Christ, He is God's shalom. In verse 5. This one will be peace. NASB has our added in there, and for good reason. But the literal reading is this one will be peace. Peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. It has the idea of well being, but it has an idea of of wholeness or completeness. In other words, every aspect of one's life is is touched by this peace. One writer said this about it. He says, No part of life 
or activities surrounding life will be contrary, contradictory, or in opposition to the shepherd king, his people, and his will and plan for them. It means all sin, corruptive influences, and destructive powers will be removed. This one is peace. Well, what's the application for Micah's day? Well, according to verse 5, the second part of that verse, Micah just goes right Here's the, Here it is, folks. <clears throat> He's peace. Against who? For their sake, against the Assyrians. When the Assyrians invade our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. What does that mean? Seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. The number seven is the number of perfection. So in other words, you have the perfect number of shepherds and leaders to lead you forth and to, and to protect you. And it says seven shepherds and eight leaders. In other words, what are you saying? There's not only are you going to have seven, we have more than enough. That's what the eight means. Seven and then eight. We'll have more than we need. We are more than adequately cared for and provided for. Because He is our peace. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and He will deliver us from the Assyrian when He attacks our land and when He tramples our territory. Interesting enough, it wasn't the Assyrians. They were, they became a threat to the southern kingdom. Now they didn't initially. There was, but that was removed. But that wasn't the long-term threat. So, what does Assyria represent to us, and even to them? Assyria just merely represents all that stands in opposition to God. And that peace is brought to God's people in the destruction of all of His and our enemies. He is peace. So similarly for us, God's shalom, God's peace is brought to us in the eventual destruction. Now granted, it doesn't appear that it's all happening right now, but in the eventual destruction of all that opposes Him. But there's more than that, isn't there? See, this is the verse that Paul quotes in the book of Ephesians. And he reveals there that another aspect of peace began. This is because remember the idea of shalom is there's a wholeness of life here. It's not just talking about one avenue. It's not just talking about peace on this front. It's talking about peace as a whole and a, and a completeness, all every aspect of our lives. And so we see that there is peace with the brethren in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, when Paul says, He Himself, speaking of Christ, says, He Himself is our peace. Now the context there tells us what? He's talking about the wall of division that had once existed between Jew and Gentile. He said that wall has been removed. There's peace of peace with the brethren. There's a testimony, is it? No, that's a testimony of the grace of God and the work of the church. That there's peace within the 
God's community, the Christian community, and that the church can, can be made up of people from such diverse backgrounds. And the church can be made up of people who are so diverse in where they stand economically or whatever the case may be. But they come together and there's a sense of peace. There's not a sense of resentment. There's not a sense of hatred. And it still ought to trouble us. And it does me. That's, that Sunday morning is one of the, is still the most segregated times of in our nation. It ought to trouble us. The Lord be pleased to add to our our community here, our church miss and uh, African American family. Then praise be to God, so that we can show forth. This is the wall that's been broken down. There's peace among the people of God. Uh, my issues with other churches are not the color of their skin. The issue I have most of them is theological. But that God would raise up people of the Reformed persuasion in the African American community. And that we join hands with those and, and come alongside them and, and demonstrate the solidarity, the true union we have in Christ because He is our peace. That's the message Paul's given there in Ephesians. There's peace. With the brethren. But not only that, there's also peace within. Colossians 3.15 says to let the peace of God, let the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and all of our life is to be brought into subjection to the will of Christ. And so the resolution of any internal conflict comes down to this. What is pleasing to God here? We know what internal conflict is, don't you? Don't you? <laughs> yeah. You know, we just have internal conflict and resolution brought to that. And here's, here's what decides it. What's pleasing to God here? To let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But it's more than that, too. And then there's ultimately peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The peace that makes all other levels of peace possible or of any real importance. Peace with my brother is not a great deal of importance if I don't have peace with God. Peace with all of mankind is not great importance if I don't have peace with God. And the world's got it backwards, don't they? You know, the world wants to plan, let's live at peace with one another. And the world is missing the bigger message, the higher message, peace with God. As it rejects Christ... It rejects peace with God. And peace at any other level is meaningless. It might make for a little bit of comfort. But it has no true significance. To be at peace with God. To know that the problem of sin has been addressed. That this is how this one who comes forth from Bethlehem. This one who is... Who is our peace? He is our peace because He's addressed the crucial issues of life. He's addressed my sin. He's addressed my estrangement, my separation from God. And He has had my sin and, my, and the penalty due for my sin placed upon Himself. And His righteousness, His merits, His perfections imputed to me, to us as His people. He's dealt with that. That's what it means when it says He is our peace. That is 
shalom. When you deal with the true issues of life. When it's beyond the surface of relationships with people, when it's beyond even the relatively insignificant matters of struggles and battles that we have with our in conflict within ourselves. The real place of peace with God. And no one else can do that for you. No one but Christ. There is no peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. And is he not? Again, as a contemporary of Micah, as Isaiah speaks forth, is he not the Prince of Peace? Prince of Peace. Let me ask you, I think I know the answer, but let's consider. Is Jesus Christ your sovereign? Is he your Lord? Is he the one before whom you bow? Is he the one before you recognize as Lord of all things? all the world and all the earth and of your own heart. Is He your shepherd? Do you know Him in the tenderness and the gentleness of a, of, a, of a shepherd who cares for His little sheep and His lambs? And Is He your peace? Is Jesus Christ your peace? Have you come to Christ, been reconciled to God, been reconciled to God through faith in Him? so that He might continue to be your peace. And if you're a child of God, He continues to be that. He is our peace. So that we can experience peace within. But we can experience peace with those without. This is the one who comes forth from Bethlehem, who goes forth. God our sovereign, God our shepherd, God our shalom, God our peace. It's Him that we celebrate. Him that we love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You that You are a God of grace and mercy. And You know the, you know the struggles of this week and even the struggles of delivery and perhaps in the struggle of receiving this morning. But we ask that you would take your words of truth and feed us. Lord, that we would delight in Christ today as our one who is sovereign, as our one who is Lord, but not a distant ruler, but one who is a shepherd to us, who knows our need of Him and who cares for us, who is for us. And the one who is brought to his peace. Peace with God. Reconciled to God by nothing less than the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. So we ask, Father, minister these truths to our heart this day. As we meditate upon the truths of Scripture concerning the incarnation of your Son this Advent season. But to be mindful, this one who came and stepped into humanity was, was God. And forgive us that we, we do not marvel at that as we ought. That these thoughts have become too familiar to us. Stir it. Stir us anew and afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.